Hi, I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. And I'm John Moskow. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is the New School's Dr. Uju Agarwal. Uju is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Experiential Learning in the School of Public Engagement, an affiliate faculty member in Global Studies and Anthropology. Uju is currently completing her first book, The Color of Choice, Race Rights, The Structure of Citizenship, and Inequality in Education. She's co-editor of What's Race Got to Do With It? How Current School Reform Policies Maintain Racial and Economic Inequality, Volume 2. Uju has a background in community organizing, focusing on educational justice, immigrant rights, and transformative justice, as well as on the intersection of arts and social justice, popular education, and adult literacy. Welcome, Uju. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uju, you've written that neoliberalism in education has often been linked to privatization, such as charter schools but that it goes much deeper than that and contributes greatly inequality in education. Can you explain what you mean by neoliberalism and how it affects schools? Sure. So a lot of times we think of neoliberalism, which has become a catchphrase, and associate it with privatization. There's lots of reasons that this makes sense. We can see the clear connects between for example, the growth of charter schools, and what David Harvey talks about as accumulation by dispossession. So by that, he talks about the way that things that were formerly held in public, so publicly owned goods or things that were never owned at all, become dispossessed and sites to capital investment and the circulation of capital, and thus become dispossessed from a commons, we could think about. And that we can trace through kind of also what, for example, Naomi Klein has talked about as disaster capitals, and we can see it unfolding before us, for example, in terms of what has taken shape in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in terms of the public schools there and as massive charterization of those schools. And we can see it taking shape also communities fighting back against that, for example, in Puerto Rico and in Chicago. In New York, one of the things that kind of got me thinking about this question of neoliberalism was, one, I was working as an organizer, a community organizer at the time in District 3 as part of an organization called Center for Immigrant Families. It was a base building um, organization in Community School District 3, which goes from 59th Street up to 122nd Street along the west side of Manhattan. And one of the things that we were confronting was segregation in the public schools. Now, at this time, it was also, um, we had been organizing around this campaign for a while. And at the same time, I was starting to go back to graduate school. So I was reading stuff. I was thinking together with people on the ground. And then kind of at, at the citywide level, lots of people were trying to understand, well, what is happening? And one of the things that we found was that a lot of the ways that neoliberalism was being explained, right, in terms of public goods, such as public schools, not being accountable to the communities that they're supposed to serve, the significance of choice in that structuring, uh, we found was actually happening in the public schools as well. And so 
That made me curious to think about, well, what does that mean? If these teachers' exclusion and all the things that we know are wrong with charter schools, right, that they can tell people to leave, that they can have discretionary admissions, that they can say, well, the school isn't for you, that there can, right, all the kind of ways that we know exclusionary and discriminatory admissions work in charter schools, we were finding that the same thing was happening in public schools. I think about neoliberalism as being organized through two kind of central components. One is the use of market-based logics to organize public goods. And the second is the advancement of a consumer-based citizenship where we don't really come to think about things as publicly owned, right? But really come to understand ourselves as in competition with others for the same good, right? And that becomes normalized and entrenched in terms of how we how we just think about things to work, that there always will be some winners and some losers, some people who win out, some people who lose out, and maybe it's just managing that better, right, in terms of equity. So in terms of neoliberalism, again, thinking about how we can understand it through those two lenses, one, the use of market-based frameworks to organize public goods, and the second is the advancement of subjectivities and structures that organize to be consumer citizens. And for me, I trace that through the policy of school choice as it emerged in the post-Brown period, um, and specifically in 1955 as it was advanced and promoted by Milton Friedman. Uju, you say the concept of choice in education has been interpreted to include the right to exclude and that this creates conditions for inequality. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, so to just kind of piggyback on what I was saying earlier in terms of neoliberalism, right? I mean, I think one kind of key thing, and this is relevant to how we understand choice as well, I think one key thing is that, you know, that I neglected to mention is that we often think about neoliberalism as something new, as something that kind of emerged in the 1980s in education studies. It's often connected to the Nation at Risk report that was published in 1983 by Reagan. And for me, I think pushing that timeline backwards allows us to think about, well, what is new about neoliberalism, right? And what is new about choice? Choice doesn't, right, often gets um, attributed to emerging in the 1980s, 1990s, and it did significantly during those periods. But one of the things that I think we gain greater clarity about, both about choice and about neoliberalism, is if we look back a little bit further to this moment when universal rights to education were won, and how those rights were came to be structured, what those rights came to do. So, I trace it back to 1955 with both Brown II when the court failed. So 1954, we know is Brown I, Brown versus Board of Education I. 1955 is Brown II, where how segregation, how desegregation would be implemented had to be worked out. In that moment, the court gave states rights to determine what their desegregation plans would look like and how they would be implemented. And in that same moment, a pretty young Milton Friedman, who's now associated with, you know, being the father of neoliberalism, puts forward a plan for how desegregation should take place. And in that, central to that plan is a concept of choice. 
so for Friedman, he says, you know, it's fine. Like, I understand state-sanctioned segregation is wrong, but he's very concerned with taking away this right of this individual right, this individual liberal freedom of people to choose, right? And he says, well, if they end up choosing segregated schools for their children, that's an important right to preserve. So in looking at this and looking at kind of what he proposes, he's proposing then a third way. He's saying, I'm not in favor, right? This is Milton Friedman saying this. I'm not in favor of state-sanctioned segregation. I'm not in favor of state-enforced desegregation. But I do think that rights should be structured flexible as individual private choices, right? That's what he puts forth as this third way he calls it. Um, and essentially, that's what gets taken up, right? This way of structuring universal rights as individual private choices. Now, how that gets pinned the right to exclude is one thing I trace in my research, kind of tracing that both historically and then thinking about what it means in the contemporary period. And that linking to the right to exclude is um, drawing then on critical race theorist Cheryl Harris's work, where she talks about the right to exclude as the nucleus, right, as she puts it, to what provides kind of shape, form, and force to what she terms as whiteness as property. So for her, she's interested in tracing how racially contingent forms of property and rights get reinscribed time and time again, and how they also animate then parallel yet but distinct histories of U.S. slavery and genocide, right? So if we think about both Black and Indigenous history in the United States, how these racially contingent forms of property and rights are bound together by this right to exclude that doesn't say how they exist historically and then are kind of carried forth to the present day, but again, how they're reanimated, reinscribed. So I think that's really helpful to think about kind of what the freedom to choose and the right to exclude, as I put it, uh, what that means and how, again, it also, we can see it reinscribing race time and time again, historically and since 1955 and to the present day. So two questions. The first one is what I'm hearing you say is that you've talked about how some charter schools, you know, and before that segregation academies and so forth, excluded, actively exclude children that they don't want to serve, whether on the basis of race or, or, or other criteria. But you're also saying that you have found this in the public schools, in the district schools, that, yeah. that schools are taking up this right to exclude even though they are supposed to be open to all students. Is, is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So I came to be interested in how this operated through the public in a system where, again, we all are supposed to, like public school is one of the last universal remaining public goods in the United States. It's one of the most accessible, right? And yet also the most segregated we know. Um, so how this right, this freedom to choose and the right to exclude wasn't just something that operated in the private, but rather how it came to be in the public. So I, as you said, I trace that through kind of mechanisms such as voucher programs, charter schools, but also segregation academies, and through the current day and how that operates then in districts that I studied, District 3 public elementary schools. 
um, and looking at the various programs, policies, and practices through which, again, these rights were structured and choice came to be common sense, right? It came to be, well, some people do their homework, some people don't, some people are comfortable with their rights, some people aren't. And my findings demonstrated, well, that's actually not true. Poor and working class parents of color throughout the district knew their rights, were just as savvy, went in groups, sometimes, right, to check out a school and advocate for their children, sometimes went individually, sometimes went in groups. But the fact is, it wasn't for a lack of agency, right, as we're often told. It was because of the structure of choice. And the other thing that I found was that, you know, we're often told that, well, the other thing that kind of crystallized for me during the period of my research, so I started researching started my ethnographic research in the aftermath of the Great Depression, and it was a moment when there was an inpouring of a number of middle-class families to public schools. They had either already been attending private schools or had planned on attending private schools and were making the switch to the public. So on one hand, we can think about that as a good thing in terms of a greater investment in public schools, and that's how it came to be narrated. But really what happened at this moment because of the policies of choice was that segregation intensified in the district schools. And so that's one of the things that I trace. And so the other kind of element of it, though, in terms of how kind of it seeps into our hearts and minds is that lots of parents I interviewed, lots of middle-class parents I interviewed said, well, I think that this is just, you know, I'm just trying to do what's right for my kid, or I just care about my kid. And I imagine that everybody else is trying to just do the same, is trying to just look out for their kid. And of course, they were right, you know. But on the other hand, one of the things that I try to show in my research and try to shed a little light on is how this doesn't have to be the way it is, right? There's a way that choice inculcates competition and makes that seem normal for something that is held commonly, is just the public good. Um, and there can be a different way that we think about that, but the choice curtails that imagination. So we're definitely gonna have further questions about District 3, but I wanted to go back first. You referred to whiteness as property, which for a lot of listeners is probably a new concept. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, so whiteness as property is a term and a concept introduced by critical race studies scholar Cheryl Harris. And for her, she's interested in how parallel yet distinct histories of U.S. slavery and genocide are continually inscribed into, as she puts it, racially contingent forms of property and rights, right? And she wants to trace how these these, the contingency is consistently animated by the right to exclude, right, which provides, she says, a common nucleus for both whiteness and private property. So whiteness and private property are both consistently made and remade by the right to exclude. So I think it's really helpful in thinking about how, again, while ideas and definitions of whiteness and private property have changed over time, What's allowed for their continued power to be made and remade is this right to exclude that choice actually allows for. So in my work, I look at how if Brown, right, Brown versus Board of Education signaled a different structure of citizenship than Jim Crow, the failure to 
redistribute resources and in Brown too, then the joining of rights, choice and exclusion and the structuring of universal rights as individual private choices ensured then that the same ends were achieved and that two key principles of neoliberalism became entrenched in the public, right? And that would be the cultivation of a consumer-oriented citizenship and to the organization of publicly owned goods or assets according to market-based logics. So again, while I kind of, I think that Harris's concept of whiteness as property helps us think through kind of our moment today. So today it's common to think about, for example, continuities, that things are the same. But if we're going to move beyond the spectacle of racism, I would say it's important to critically examine the mechanisms of its production. And here, again, whiteness is property, thinking about what allows it to be made and remade, this right to exclude that, again, shapes the common nucleus for both whiteness and private property and gives it continued shape, form, and force throughout history or throughout recent history is, I think, really helpful. So going back to to District 3 and also thinking in terms of this right to exclude, you mentioned the experiences of low-income parents in District 3 as they, you know, sought to exercise choice, exercise their choice. Um, What have some of these experiences actually been? Yeah. It's a good question. They were very, they were varied, um, but what held them together in some ways uh, we can think about is contingency, right? And some may say, well, that's just part of how choice works. It's contingent, right, for everybody. But again, what marked it, I think, in terms of what I saw and and worked through um, with folks was that it was marked by the very essence of what we might think about as whiteness as property, right? The right to exclude. So seeing how poor and working class parents' inclusion was contingent on what served the needs of middle class parents. And to remind us, these are public schools in a district that while gentrified still has a very significant low income and public housing stock. And where many of the public schools were never, were not really sought after spaces until the Great Recession started changing this quite significantly and dramatically. Some of this changed in the years before, but really the Great Recession kind of marked a significant moment of change. And I think here, maybe an example from some of the district's dual language programs is helpful. So the the history of dual language in District 3 is a rich one and goes back to El Comité and other radical forces that fought for this important alternative to bilingual education. But in recent years, we've seen dual language programs in District 3 become another bastion of exclusion, turning on its head, really, the legacy of oppositional struggle that established them in the first place and excluding the very communities that fought for them. So how I saw this play out, for example, in District 3 was that dual language programs, as one policy expert put it, came a quote-unquote alternative to gifted and talented programs, right? And as they said, requires parents to have the appropriate resources at home that might include a nanny or a doorman that speaks the language uh, of the program, assuming, of course, again, uh, kind of that these families are white or English-dominant and economically resourced. So what ended up then happening where contingency, again, and choice and exclusion played out 
was that the inclusion of poor and working class families of color then became contingent on what was needed to make these programs work for white and middle class families. And so some families might be included if they provided the right combo of language or age for their child, and some would not. Um, and it was, again, this contingency that was shaped by the need of, again, kind of whiteness and class that really shaped the exclusion of poor and working class families of, of color in the district. Again, two programs that uh, were established to serve their very needs. And the other thing that I found was that contingency in the public pushed out poor and working class parents to charter schools when they already had a critique of them. So while we often, you know, I think one of the thing, one of the narratives out there is that charter parents are duped or just don't know about the problems with charter schools, but in this case, they did. And the choice in the public system was actually driving parents to charter schools, right? So the choice and the exclusion that it allowed for in the public system was driving parents who had an already critique of charter schools for varied reasons, right? Ranging from their own experiences with older children to family members' experiences to community members' experiences. They were, they kind of came in saying, I don't want to go to this charter school. But the contingency and exclusion of the public system made it so that charters often became the only option for these parents or the only option that they saw themselves having. So, yeah, that's just, I think, a few examples of, of how this played out uh, for parents in District 3 that I worked with. So, District 3 has recently adopted a desegregation plan. Have you looked at it, and is it a good plan? Well, one of the things, I mean, I think to ask ourselves about this moment, and I think you're referring to the middle school plan, yeah? Yes. Great. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's important to think about in this moment is you know, as segregation and inequality in education kind of gains increased visibility, is how is the language that communities have used to fight um, systemic inequality being appropriated and kind of absorbed, right, by the powers that be? So in this case, the targets for the middle school integration plan in District 3 are 25%, right? 25% kind of set-asides, we could say, for poor and working class students whose grades are below a certain level. Now, the targets of 25% of poor and working class students is is what is half of the district-wide average. And this, so I think that one of the things that we see right now and the kind of, imp- so the impact has been pretty minuscule. And again, we could say that that has to do with outreach. But on the other hand, we could also have say that it has to do with the targets themselves and what kind of reform we're really pushing for, you know? So again, this is a moment where there's a lot of increased visibility to a problem that people have been fighting around and organizing around for a very, very, very long time, right? And we can trace that history back through the long civil rights movement. But I think one of the kind of questions before us now is what are we willing to say counts as change? And what are we willing to accept? So I think at this moment, we have a lot of people in power 
who are, you know, trying to, on one hand, respond to the increased galvanization of forces demanding change. Um, and so I think it's on us to be really vigilant about what those changes then are and what we really need and what and who's going to drive them forward. And so one of the things I think we need to always also think about is, you know, who's at the table? Who's, cha- who's making these changes? Who's not at the table and why? And so while some of, some of those kind of pushing the changes forward in District 3 are well-intended, we also have to think about, again, whose voices are not present and what is a change that is claiming to kind of be a desegregation policy? What is it actually doing and what would it even allow for it? 25, at 25% kind of decides that it being half of, again, the district-wide population it doesn't seem like it really is the kind of bold and real change that we need right now. So shifting to citywide initiatives, Mayor de Blasio's School Diversity Advisory Group made a number of recommendations over the summer. As far as I know, the mayor hasn't said yet whether he's accepting them. What were the most important of these and what do you think about the group's recommendations? Well, I think the recommendation to get rid of G&T, um, to get rid of gifted and talented is a wonderful um, recommendation. I think it's long overdue. I think it's needed. But it goes back to what I was talking about before, right, in terms of how we think about change taking place. And if we look on the ground in District 3, for example, there will be schools that say they're desegregated based on their overall population. And they won't have a gifted and talented program. But when you walk in the school, the classrooms are definitely segregated, but they're segregated by program, right? And so this goes back to the dual language program in this, in this instance, that in the example that I'm talking about and was referring to earlier. But it could be any sort of mechanism, right? We know that tracking also takes place. So I think it's wonderful and, and over, long overdue to get rid of gifted and talented education and the screen for middle schools and high schools and the specialized high schools. But then we also have to ensure and really have clear the vision that we're working towards. Is it just getting rid of these uh, mechanisms or is it ensuring also that other mechanisms, other programs, other siphoned off spaces don't grow in their place? So what you're really talking about, you know, is what you said, that it's a question of who's at the table and who has the power to ensure that meaningful changes are taking place because otherwise you can make one change and then the powers that be or the structures of things simply adapt themselves so that the same issues arise uh, in a different framework. Absolutely. And I think we see that, you know, I mean, not just in education, but we see that all over right now, right? We see it in the struggle around no new jails, right? And to shut down Rikers. And now we see 12 new jails with, combined with hospitals and kind of community-friendly jails and whatnot supposedly in their place, right? And we have the Ford Foundation president coming out and saying, well, you have to be nuanced and you have to accept that change is incremental. But when it comes to, again, forces that we know take lives away like jails and institutions that are supposed to be life-giving like schools, we do need to be bold and clear in our vision and also 
you know, need to be really inclusive about who's at the table, as you were saying, John, in terms of thinking about what are the histories of dispossession that need to inform what any kind of redistribution, what any kind of reformulation could be. Because without those experiences, we're just bound to recreate more of the same. Ucha, you're known for a participatory research model in your work with parents. What does this look like and why is it so important? Well, so participatory research really grows out of my training as a community organizer. In terms of participatory action research, it's something that we developed together at the Center for Immigrant Families. And then as I started you know, kind of embarking on my dissertation work um, and my dissertation research, I thought to myself, well, okay, how is this going to work? And how, how do I want to structure my research? So I came to a conclusion that it was, you know, in the end, it was going to be me going, kind of getting the degree. So calling it participatory for me, I know there's amazing models of people who do participatory research for their own research, but for me, it didn't feel like it made sense. Um, But what I did do was I connected organizing to my research and made sure that in some ways I, you know, and I talk about this when I teach methods, that I employed uneven research methods, right? So I did interviews with everybody, um, semi-structured ethnographic interviews with everybody across the board, but I also held focus groups and helped build um, an organizing project at the Head Start Center where I was involved, thinking that, you know, in terms of research, it would be important for people's stories not just to be held with me individually, but to be held collectively, especially given kind of the terrain of power that we were navigating in a very segregated district. But um, in terms of participatory research more broadly, it can be just, you know, one of the most powerful and transformative tools, I think, when it's done right. And it can kind of lead to not just significant research, but a transformed community. So at the Center for Immigrant Families, for example, we didn't just kind of collectively come up with research questions, but everybody was part of the process from start to finish. And for us, what made that possible was was kind of our role in the community. Um, but then also kind of taking a pause at the different moments. So for example, when we started, we started, you know, with a traditional survey when we were organizing a CIF. And in that survey, we thought we were kind of being very participatory. We came up with the questions together as a collective. We went out in teams. We soon found, though, that um, our surveys weren't bearing the results that we wanted. And in our collective, and this was kind of, I think, one of the things that really distinguished us, in our collective reflections around this, when, when we kind of took pause to take stock, one of the things we realized was that we just needed to kind of break the normalization or common sense of segregation. And so we turned to allies who then trained us in street theater, and we developed skits based on members' stories. And one of the things that this then allowed also was for members' stories to be at the center of everything we did. And so it grew kind of both our base, um, our documentation, our research, but also kind of our collective leadership and power. So I think participatory research is amazing. I think it's I think some of the most powerful examples of it come from 
social justice organizations and not always a university. And sometimes there's really powerful examples in the university. But I think participatory research as a tool of transformation at at multiple levels is very powerful. So speaking of transformation, and it's clear that what you're talking about that we need in New York and more generally is a transformation of how we look at education and how, what are, what are some of your thoughts about ways that our listeners, many of whom are in New York, many of whom are elsewhere, including in other countries, but how can our listeners, wherever they are, whether they're educators, parents, students, what are some of the ways that they can be organizing for fundamental change? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing is just finding out what organizing is already going on in their school, in their neighborhood, in their community, um, across the city. And there's multiple forums and shapes of that now. So it's a good moment to think about doing that survey of the landscape and thinking about kind of, well, how could I contribute to something? And then also thinking about that question of, well, who's at the table, right? And who's not and why? And thinking about changing that. So for example, often it would be in District 3 that meetings would be announced very late, only over the internet, and then held at like, you know, 9 or 10 o'clock during the day. And then there would be this kind of, well, look who's here, right? Um, These are the parents that care. And so how do we really think about what are kind of just even the structures that we need to put in place to ensure a more inclusive space? So, for example, one of the things we pushed for was childcare and advance kind of notice and good outreach and food and right some very basic things that that we can all kind of collectively make happen. Um, It does take some work, but it's not that much work. And then it really shifts kind of the dialogue, right? It shifts uh, the, the type of invitation that it's not, oh, just those people's meeting over there, but it's, oh, this could be about all of us. And so the very kind of act of the organizing of the meeting can be something that makes people then feel included and like they could have a voice there. And then I think another thing could be, you know, I mean, that I've been thinking, thinking about and talking about with more people is just, you know, the need to really study history Think about starting a a reading group or a book club at your school or your library or wherever you're at, you know, and to think about how, where we're at connects to history, what we can learn, what people tried out before. Is this a similar moment, right? In terms of negotiating, again, different modes of reform um, and kind of heightened modes of social mobilization. What were people, for example, like the women of the Harlem Nine, it's the next project that I'm working on. What were they fighting for? How did they see themselves? How did they see themselves in the city? What made them risk keeping their children home from school and jail time in order to fight for something that was so basic, right? So, and how, how can that help us see our moment today differently? Policy is so important. It's important to be sharp about it. It's important to be clear about it and get it right. But we also have to kind of be very grounded in and clear about the lives and what's at stake in terms of shaping these policies. So I think however that connection is, right, through kind of current organizing or looking at history or both or making spaces more inclusive, any of those kind of would be really important. 
Well, I think that's an important point about uh, looking at historical resources and, and perhaps forming book groups or study groups. Are there any specific resources you'd recommend to parent or teacher groups? Wow. Well, I think there's a lot. I know, um, for example, the Schomburg has conversation in Black Freedom and studies every month that Jean Theo Harris and Kamosi Woodard organize. I think I think there's just so much going on. I'd be happy to recommend some resources, but that's one consistent kind of every once a month thing. It's it is uptown, so it's not as accessible to everybody. But I'd be happy to recommend some resources. And I think there's just a lot of again important work going on right now. Research, organizing, um, and both to think about, well, how do we see our struggles? One, that is new, but in terms of continuing a legacy, and why is that even important? Well, we'll link to those resources on our website. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we haven't yet covered? Um, I think the only kind of two quick things that I want to emphasize or just kind of plug is that um, the current kind of discourse on choice um, right now, we often think about it in terms of two ways. One, either kind of how do middle class parents or white parents make better choices that desegregate schools? Or the second being kind of mapping and tracking choice. Who chooses and then choice all becomes just like one big graph or a series of graphs and maps. And I think one of the things that I learned both through organizing and through my research is that both of those kind of trajectories of thinking through choice erase both agency, power, and organizing, right? So they erase the agency of poor and working class parents, poor and working class parents of color who try also to choose all the time, but aren't afforded the choices that they want or try and make, um, again, because of this right to exclude and the kind of discretion that choice allows for, and that their organizing isn't always lifted up, right? The, and this is where it goes back to the question of history. So how do we recover those histories and how does it then help us see the slow and maybe not flashy kind of organizing that is going on on a daily basis at a very local level that doesn't always make the headlines. Um, and then three, you know, the piece around kind of mapping choice. Yes, it's important to know quantitative research. I will never discount because it's so important, but it is also important to think about the power landscape. It's not just bodies moving around. It's not just people moving around, but it really is thinking about what is the landscape of power? What do these choices mean? What is the context, right? And that's where we really do need to look a little bit more closely and get closer to the ground in whatever vapor capacity that means. So to really kind of give it context and meaning. Thank you so much, Dr. Uju Agawa. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated the ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on our Ethical Schools blog. Please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. You can check out prior episodes and articles on our site, ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, at Ethical Schools, and Instagram. Until next week.